Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for March 27th, 2015, the Say It With Me President Ted Cruz edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in Washington, D.C. Now it's John Dickerson's turn to be on vacation. So now we are Dickerson-less, but instead of John Dickerson, we have someone who is even nattier and just as smart, Jamel Bowie, who is what Slate... Staff, I think staff, staff writer. writer is my we always official get title. To the staff yeah. writer. I think your epigraph is now even nattier and just as smart. Yes, How's that? I'm going I'm to adopt that from a Twitter bio. That's yeah, that's good. You can, you go. If you want to re- refer to me, if you if you need it <laughs> validated, I'll validate it. Uh, and that voice you heard, yes, listeners, the voice you've been waiting for, it's Emily Bazelon, back from literal round the world journey. Hello, Emily. Welcome Hello. back. Hello. It's great to be here. Did you, you were in Southeast Asia. Did you stay in touch with American politics while you were in Southeast Asia or were you off the grid? You know, I did actually. I was, I was happy to be reading a little bit of news every day. And as you know, the internet is a wondrous thing. Although (laughs) there were bits of it, I think, being blocked in Vietnam in particular. I couldn't really tell if it was just a bad connection on a few days, but there were days I couldn't access Twitter, but everything else was working. It was interesting. That would be funny. Um, Not in Singapore or Hong Kong or Cambodia, though. You would have thought Singapore, they'd be blocking stuff left and right. No? No, I don't think they're blocking anything in Singapore. Um, I I think they're, you know, they're they're becoming more inclusive and democratic. But, uh... Yeah. Anyway, you, it was a little hard to tell. Were you in Singapore when Lee Kuan Yew died? No, we had left by then. But it was interesting to think about that because he's just a towering figure there, obviously. So we had talked a lot of, and heard a lot about him while we were there. Well, we are glad to have you back. This week's show, Ted Cruz launches his run for president. Does he have a shot? Then a Supreme Court case about a Confederate, license, Confederate flag license plate that is so twisty-turny on free speech, that it may end with me abolishing the First Amendment entirely. I'm so confused by this case. I can't wait for Emily to explain it to me. <laughs> you can't so abolish the First Amendment. It's your favorite one. This case just has me, it has me knotted up. And then we'll talk about the apparent suicide and mass murder by German Wings's co-pilot in this terrible, terrible uh, airline crash that happened this week. And we'll have cocktail chatter. Then in Slate Plus, Seymour Hirsch goes back to Milai or goes to Milai, the site of the massacre he chronicled nearly 50 years ago and talks about the kind of legacy of the Vietnam War and what that, what that event did to America's standing in the world, to the war itself and to him. Before we get started, we have a live show in two weeks in New York at the Bell House. Don't forget that. Those of you who have tickets, it's sold out. And I also want to put in a plug for the working podcast, which I think many of you heard, which I did this past fall, which was me interviewing various people about exactly how they do their jobs. It has been taken up. I have passed the the banner, the baton of the working podcast to Adam Davidson of uh, founder of Planet Money, just brilliant, brilliant journalist and interviewer. And he has restarted that series. He has now done two episodes of it. If you haven't had a chance to 
go back and listen. You must listen to Adam's interviews. They are much better than mine. His interview with the bail bondsman that ran this week is unbelievable. It is so great about what it's like to be a bail bondsman. And the guy he found is the most uh, charismatic radio person you'll ever listen to. So so please go listen to Adam Davidson doing the working podcast. Have you did, have you heard this? No, I haven't. I haven't heard the bail. I haven't heard either of them. I talked to Adam about it and he sounded super into it. Now I'm completely excited to go listen. The bail bondsman is amazing. I was I was like out for a walk in the cold weather and just listening to it. And I just kept, I extended my walk so I could keep listening. (laughs) Ted Cruz announced on Monday that he's running for president, which caused delighted giggles to echo through the halls of Hillary Clinton's campaign headquarters, if such a thing exists. The first-term Texas senator is one of the great rhetoricians and firebrands of our time. But president, really? He opened his campaign at Liberty University with a big nod to the social conservatives that he's courting, and he promises to yank the GOP presidential campaign even further to the right. Jamel, why is he running given that he has basically no chance to be elected president? So, uh, you know, I think Ted Cruz believes he has a chance to be president. Like people, especially a guy like Ted Cruz, who by all accounts is just sort of a bit of a megalomaniac, I'm uh, I'm reasonably sure he thinks he can win. And I think his strategy here, um, and it makes total sense if you think about it a little bit, is that in the last, in 2012, right, you had Mitt Romney versus this clown car of socially conservative candidates and Ron, and Ron Paul. And what happened was Mitt Romney was able to kind of eke it out because the other side was just so divided. And I think Ted Cruz is thinking, if I can unite all of those social conservatives under a single banner, then I at least have an electoral base in which to challenge you know, whoever the establishment candidate is. And because the establishment is divided between sort of multiple different establishments, you got Jeb Bush, you got Scott Walker, you have Marco Rubio. Um, there's actually a chance if Ted Cruz is successful that he can like, he can win. That's, that's the, that's the theory. I think it's, you know, not going to work, but it's like a sound uh, theory of a candidacy. Plus, I don't think he cares in some sense, because I think you're right that he's a, megalomaniac and this is going to enhance his national standing no matter what happens next so it's like win-win for him i mean other than the cost of campaigning and how exhausting that is which does not seem like something that is going to bother him it seems like something he'll revel in right right so the tightrope he walks or the, the the needle he is threading is rick santorum and mike huckabee and ben carson turn out not to be legitimate candidates that's right so that he unifies the social conservatives and that Scott Walker somehow isn't a social conservative in this model. Or tanks in some way, like blows it. So the reason why Scott Walker is like the threat that he is to either a guy like Cruz or, or Rand Paul or Bobby Jindal um, or Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio is that he actually kind of walks right down this line of being very socially conservative, like talks a lot about being the, the son of a Baptist preacher or so on and so forth. But also tight ties to the Koch brothers, tight ties to business conservatives, sort of well-liked among that class of Republican. Um, and it's kind of minimally acceptable to everyone. That makes him, like the I think, the real genuine threat to everyone who's vying for this thing. Um, but I wouldn't group him with Cruz because I just see him as much more credible for that reason. I see him as a much more credible figure um, and thus sort of establishment uh, than Cruz, who no one likes Ted Cruz. Like no one in the Republican Party... Um, who like deals with money or deals with organizations or it does any of the things that you would need to or have on your side. Or works in the United States Senate. Or works in the United States Senate. They all hate Ted Cruz, which is why I think this is a long shot. Like a lot of things can go wrong for you and you can still win a nomination. But the one thing that cannot go wrong for you is to have a bulk of the party just loathe you. And Emily, just on your Scott Walker point, your point is that the other hope for Cruz would be Scott Walker turns out to be a disastrous candidate for reasons we haven't identified yet. Like he's he's just not successful as a candidate or he blows up or does something stupid or there's a skeleton Yeah, somewhere. just doesn't catch fire with the voters. You know, he's he. there are a lot of things about him that are great on paper and my money is still on him. I mean, he would be my choice if I was choosing for them for their sake. But, you know, that doesn't mean he's going to stand the test of the battles of the campaigning well. And also you'd have like Bush would have to flame out. Rubio would have to flame out. Um, everyone would have to flame out for Ted Cruz to suddenly emerge as like a 
reasonable alternative. On the other hand, though, let's just assume none of that happens and he doesn't get close to the nomination, which seems greater odds. It's going to be he'll bedevil all the other candidates. He'll fire up the race. He'll mean that the Republican candidates are forced to contend with someone who is on the right in as like hard a right place as you can possibly be, right? I mean, he is that guy that the Republican Party would probably be better off if he wasn't in the race. Well, maybe, but he so yes, in the sense that he's going to pull everybody to the right because he is assuming he raises enough money that he can stay in after Iowa and he can sort of be be around. He's going to force them to take positions that are further to the right than probably people in the party want to have to take to run in the general. On the other hand, isn't a kind of boisterous primary campaign going to be good for the Republican Party generally? And Cruz will certainly make it boisterous. He's he's so much smarter than – he's smarter than a Santorum or, or a Carson or a, or a Huckabee, the three other people who occupy that space. Yeah, he's smart. He knows the Constitution. He knows the law. He knows policy well. But I think the problem with your argument is that – I mean, first of all, the race was already going to be boisterous because it had plenty of other voices in it. And the thing about Cruz is that when you remember how much Romney got hurt by moving to the right, the you know, particularly his self-deportation remarks, which haunted him so much in the general election, you can completely imagine Cruz provoking just such a soundbite out of either Walker or Bush or Rubio, something that just dogs them because it was maybe the right thing to say, electorally speaking, for the primary, but it puts them too far to the right for the general election. What does Cruz do to Rand Paul? What Cruz does is sort of highlight the extent to which Rand Paul is just out of the mainstream with the party. I mean, I, I, you know, Rand Paul's big problem in the Republican primary is that he's just so like anti-interventionist and Republicans really care about foreign policy, you know, hawkishness and that kind of Cruz, I think Cruz has deliberately been trying to say, I got, I have all of your libertarian-ish stuff that Rand Paul has, but I also want to like bomb Muslims. And you can count on me to both cut the welfare state and like stick it to the people over in Iran. And that kind of diminishes Rand Paul's appeal because the, the universe of people in the Republican Party, or at least in the Republican primary electorate, who don't want to bomb other countries is actually pretty small. Great. And now Cruz has already <laughs> talked about abolishing the IRS. So you can abolish the IRS. That takes Rand Paul's territory away from him. And like you said, you can go bomb every Muslim everywhere or whatever. R- Rand Paul is interesting, I, th- I think, because he has this this like criminal justice reform lark. And it'll be interesting to see if that makes its way into the primaries of thing people care about. Right. Like if if in this primary election, everyone's like, maybe we shouldn't alienate all minorities. And so let's find this thing that can like make us seem, if not appeal to minority voters, and at least make us seem not terrible for, you know, middle class white suburbanites who want to be comfortable voting for us. So what I could see happening from that is that other candidates, maybe Rubio or Bush or Walker, pick up on that criminal justice reform plank from Rand Paul, but not that Rand Paul really gets very far with it himself. That's right. That's what I mean. Like it becomes, it gets absorbed into everyone else's approach. Why does everyone hate Ted Cruz so much? Because he seems like he's just a big jerk. And also he's (laughs) take, right? I mean, his way of working is to alienate other right now, other senators where he, no matter what the Republican Party position is, he doesn't want to toe the line. He's taken on the leadership again and again. He's made his reputation by defying authority when authority means the grownups in his own party. And I think people, even if it's a play, it seems like the Republican leadership and even the rank and file in the Senate have gotten really tired about uh, of it because it's self-promotional bloviating at the expense of the party. And on principle, I'm sure Ted Cruz would add. I think that's basically right. I mean, it's interesting that Cruz always kind of obliquely compares himself to Reagan. And it's very clear to me that he sees this as like a Reagan 76 kind of thing that like he'll, you know, come out of nowhere and almost or beat the establishment guy. But the thing about Reagan is he was he was governor of California for eight years. And as governor of like the largest state in the country, you can kind of be a bit bombastic and it's okay, right? You have this separate power base disconnected from the national party a bit. But like Cruz is a senator. He's not, he kind of does depend on the, on the goodwill of his colleagues to have a viable power base. Otherwise, you know, 
if Cruz is like competing in South Carolina or competing in Iowa, New Hampshire, is Kelly Ayotte gonna lend him her organization or or let her endorsers like support him um, if she thinks he's a jerk? I, I don't think so. And that's his problem. Like no one's gonna wanna people will say, Why would we help you out when there's like all these other folks who aren't terrible? But why isn't he for the Republicans what Obama was in two thousand eight? Which is I mean, Obama wasn't particularly liked in the Senate. He didn't have, I mean, he wasn't disliked, but he wasn't liked. But he had that same ability to fire up a group of people at the grassroots and that same kind of trade-off of there's not experience, but there's a kind of passion to him. But why, his why ability it, to fire up the crew, base why, was broader, wasn't it? Well, and also, it is different to be not super popular in the Senate, to be like the the radioactive among your your own colleagues in your party, right? That seems significant. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the the telling thing to Obama's rise about Obama's rise to me is the fact that Harry Reid and Ted Kennedy approached him about running for president. Harry Reid's the one who was like, "I think you should think about this," and that. <laughs> The fact of that, I think what it suggests is that, you know, Obama wasn't super popular, but he wasn't disliked. He It was clear to everyone that he it was a bit of a star. And there is a whole wing of the party that didn't want Hillary Clinton. And so you can you can mold someone like Obama into a credible candidate. Well, here, all right, let me put it a different way. There's going to be a huge number of social conservatives who feel we've gave you McCain, we gave you Romney. You know, we've, we've had enough of your bad middle-of-the-road candidates. Like, it's time. It's our time. Ted Cruz is going to carry the, the banner for us. Ted Cruz is the best speaker, the most powerful speaker, the, the biggest believer in this. Why isn't that a really good position to occupy? It seems like it, it is. It seems like considering how powerful that group is within the Republican primary, not in the general election, but within the Republican primary, why isn't that kind of a very potent position for Cruz to be in? I think it comes back to the fact that he's just not liked in the, in the institutional party. I mean, the analogy to Obama is that Obama was sort of the, the candidate of the anti-war left, and that w- that worked. Even the, even if there's like this big chunk of the party that doesn't isn't on board with the anti-war left, it works because Obama was minimally acceptable to everyone else, right? Like everyone else in the party could could get behind him, could wouldn't find him too objectionable. He was willing to bend his positions to accommodate them. But Ted Cruz starts from a position of not being acceptable to anyone but social conservatives, right. and then is unwilling. Right now, it seems to like bend it all. And so if he were more like Marco Rubio, right, sort of this like kind of affable guy, I think you'd be totally right. But as it stands, he's just like too polarizing. Right. And they have other choices, even if they're not as intellectually astute. Right. I mean, they could get behind Perry or Huckabee or Santorum or even Bobby Jindal. Right. All right. Last question on this. Did Emily, did Cruz win the day with his announcement? So his idea was he was going to get in early. So he's going to have the first official campaign, and and that this would he would just start to distract from Walker. It seems to me that all that happened is he made his announcement, and the the entire discussion around his announcement was this guy has no chance to win. So that in that sense, he didn't win the day. It it didn't create a, a kind of sense that this is a, a campaign that matters. But you know what do I know? I'm a I'm a Democrat in Washington D.C. <laughs> and I'm a Democrat who was in. Where was I? Vietnam when that happened. I think he like got a lot of coverage in the news cycle on that particular day. But beyond that, I think you're right. Jamel, you be the actual yeah, observer I, here. I don't think uh, among sort of like right wing writers, he I think he created a little energy. There's they're sort of like the second tier of right wing pundits are sort of like on board with it. That first tier is still pretty hostile. I think the smartest take I saw was from um, uh, John Podhorst. Someone whose name is escaping you? <laughs> uh, yeah, someone whose name is escaping me. But I just said it at the New York Post who made the point that Cruz's problem is even if he's exciting, this isn't a field where there aren't any conservatives. And not like in the <coughs> sense that there aren't any Ted Cruz-style people, but like Jeb Bush left office as governor of Florida as a right-wing governor, right? Sort of like your moderate candidate in this race is pretty conservative. And in that kind of universe of candidates, it's like, well, what what really distinguishes Cruz? I mean, if we want an electable conservative, we actually have a couple of them. If we want a gifted speaker, Marco Rubio is like pretty good on the stump, right? Like Cruz doesn't have anything above and beyond what is already on offer. And I think what the announcement did is sort of like drew that into sharp relief. But we'll see what happens. The GapFest is sponsored this week by Stamps.com. 
when you think about the best time to go to the post office, you're probably guessing that that's before work or after work or during lunch. But you're wrong. That's when it's the most crowded because everyone is going at those times. The truth is, is that there is no convenient time to go to the post office, which is why you need Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can access all the services of the post office right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. Then just hand it to your mail carrier. It is so easy. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com is open 24-7 with no lines, so you can get your mailing and shipping done whenever it's convenient for you. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST for a special offer, a no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. The Supreme Court heard a case this week that made my head hurt. It is great that Emily is back. Emily is <laughs> Emily is human Advil when it comes to Supreme Court cases. <laughs> this case involves a commemorative license plate issued in Texas, or I guess sought to be issued in Texas, by the son of con, uh, wait, the sons. sons of Confederate veterans that would show the Confederate battle flag. It was turned down by the state, which has about 400 organizations that it gives permission to have such commemorative license plates in order to make a bunch of money. And I think the state itself makes the license plates. The question yep, is... they manufacture them. Not as much money as you'd think. They were charging 8000 for the first... to, like, guarantee the first 1,000 plates. That's it? didn't it? seem like enough money wow. to me. So... Is a commemorative license plate speech by the state, in which case there seem, would seem to be no problem in turning it down? You, the state is not subject to – basically the state can do the speech that it wants to choose. Or is, is a, is a uh, license plate itself expressive speech by the person who owns the car and thus – there's some First <laughs> Amendment thus rigor. That's the First Amendment. Want. You know, you, can you say whatever you want on this on the plate with it? Is it individual? In fact, individual speech, but they still don't have the right to put it on there. This thing is just like I've read this like many articles about this. I do not understand it. Emily, clarify it. Well, Are we so going to have I... Confederate flags on these Texas license plates or not? Ah, uh, huh. Well, I'm not sure what the answer to that part is, but I actually think. I mean, you laid it out well. There's another possibility, which seems like the obvious one to me, and actually I think the justices were making their way this to this position, which is that license plates, vanity license plates, are some kind of hybrid speech that are people plus the government. And then the question is like, okay, well, A, if that's true, what's the test then for who's talking and what the standard should be? And then is there any way, if this is hybrid speech, for the state to say no to a Confederate flag? And if they have to say yes to the Confederate flag, do they also have to say yes to, you know, bong hits for Jesus and go jihad and, you know, a racial epithet? And and then how could it be that a state would have to issue a go jihad license plate? That just seems like a bizarre outcome. And, you know, I think this is a sort of confusing forum. I was just like asking a bunch of people yesterday, who do you think's talking when you look at a license plate and you see a message that isn't, you know, live free or die or nutmeg state, but some message in the corner? What is the difference between that and a bumper sticker? It seems to me like there is some difference. We kind of get the idea that the license plate belongs to the state. And yet I don't necessarily think that when people see save the sound in the corner of the license plate, they think that's like the state of Maine talking. I don't know. And is this like what a reasonable person would think about who's talking on the license plate? Is that the right way to be thinking about it? That test comes from a lone uh, dissent, I think, but or concurrence by Justice Souter in a different case. And this is just this weird kind of semi-public forum, and the Supreme Court has never addressed um, exactly what it is. So, And what do you guys think? Who's talking? When you look at a license plate, who do you think is talking? I sort of see it as like a combination of both the state and whoever has a license plate, right? Like if I 
if I see in Virginia, there's choose lice, choose lice, no, not not choose lice, license plate. Choose lice. Choose <laughs> That's life. what my kids have done generally. <laughs> They've chosen lice. If you see a twelve, like a, if you see like an eight year old in a car driving, they'd probably choose lice license plate. Um, no, but choose life license plates. And when I see those, I see that as both this is a person who's like probably anti-abortion. It also, the state of Virginia has decided it wants to sort of sanction at least that kind of message for people who want to put it on their cars in this like vaguely official capacity. What makes the Texas thing odd to me is that this is the state that that has like a Confederate heroes day. Like it it already memorializes (laughs) the Confederacy. And so what... Like with the Go Jihad license plate, the state of Texas doesn't have like a Jihad day. And so it can say that's not just not, we're not going to endorse that. But like it has, the state of Texas endorses Confederate remembrance. They sell Confederate flags at the capital of the state. So what basis does it have to say like, oh, we're not going to have that license plate? Well, technically speaking, to answer that question, there is a board (laughs) at the DMV or connected to the DMV that approves or disapproves license plate designs. That board got a lot, heard a lot of testimony from people who object to the Confederate flag, see it as, you know, a symbol of racism and a symbol of being pro-slavery. And that board was moved by this testimony to unanimously disapprove this flag. And it was the, as far as um, anyone can tell, it's the the only time this particular board has not allowed a license plate design to go through. I can't even remember which side of this argument I'm about to make. I've argued in the past. So, like, listeners, if you remember me from the opposite side, <laughs> Surely call me out Surely you're going to make the pro-First Amendment argument. Well, no, but I actually, think, I actually think my First Amendment boundary has to do with this question of what is speech. And I, it is not at all clear to me that the Confederate battle flag, which is a as a symbol, is the same thing as saying – Sons of Confederate veterans, you know, you know, remember our heritage. The Confederate battle flag ha- has a kind of force and, a, and it says something different. And I don't know that it is entitled to the same First Amendment protection. I don't believe – I don't think I believe that burning a flag – is expressive speech in the way that the Supreme Court has said it is. And therefore, I don't okay, believe... Okay, that's a different line of well, cases, it's not a different line less. of... Well, okay, maybe a different line of cases, but I guess where it allows me to reach the conclusion that it's perfectly okay for there to be a Sons of Confederate Veterans license plate that Texas should authorize, but and yet it can be perfectly not okay for that license plate to have a Confederate flag on it. Like, the, the flag itself is a form of speech which is not protected in the same way that the, the words... I believe that speech, you know, has to do with language, basically. So your grounds – so here's the problem. The board that refused to allow this flag, the grounds they gave was that it was offensive. And that is not a winner. We don't let – basically no – I mean, if if it's purely state speech, then maybe. But essentially, Breyer and a couple other members of the court were saying this week, like, come on, give us something a little better as your reason for turning down this design. So it sounds like your reason is – this is a symbol as opposed to words? Well, yeah. And I mean, I think this is why we've seen the Confederate flag come down in so many places because it is – it's as a symbol, it is clearly one that, that causes pain to people and causes distress and signifies something bad. Where sons of – saying sons of Confederate veterans is just like saying we're an organization that represents – you know, that – I don't know. Jamel, do you, you know, you grew up in the South. You're yeah. a black man growing up in the South. You – I'm sure saw Confederate flags oh, all the time. All the time. Yeah, yeah. Like, does, is a Confederate flag? Like, I don't know. Like, yeah. you, you you take it where you want to go. I, I tend to see the Confederate flag as like a, a potent symbol of very ugly things. If this were on ballot in Virginia, or if this were thing in Virginia, I would strongly urge the state of Virginia to not have a Confederate flag license plate. But the state of Virginia also does not have any particular holiday, or at least I don't think it does anymore, commemorating the Confederacy, right? So, like, with with Texas, my thing is, I think they should be consistent. If you're going to have state speech sanctioning a remembrance day for Confederate heroes, whatever that means, and I understand that it's like a different board making that decision, but I don't see how you can do one but not the other. Hmm. So your view is, your view is, like, they should have... that Confederate flag on the on the uh, yeah, I mean, it, just for consistency's sake. Like, it, it, it shouldn't tries... they get rid of their Confederate Heroes Day? That was what I thought when I was reading this. I, was like, I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna God. go so far to ask Texas to get rid of the Confederate Heroes Day, though. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I will. <laughs> if they're not gonna if they're gonna reject the license plate, then I think they're I think the state of Texas should consider whether whether it should have a Confederate Heroes Day. I mean, I do think it's one or the other. 
Well, the Confederate Heroes Day is presumably an act of the Texas state legislature. Right. And this license right, plate is this not. Isn't. Right, right. I mean, to confuse this still further, in other states, you don't get to be just an organization applying to make a license plate. The state legislature has to pass a law saying yes to your license plate. So there's a separate fight going on in North Carolina where the legislature allowed choose life license plates, but did not allow respect choice license plates. Now, there are two things about that that are interesting. I mean, one is that that just seems like wrong because if you're going to allow one to go forward, you have to let the other, whichever direction, except that if it's state speech, purely state speech, if you buy that idea, then I guess, yeah, you could have the state want to say choose life and not respect choice, which to me shows why these plates are not purely state speech because that just doesn't make any sense. But the second thing is if we're trying to figure out again, like who's talking here, the fact that in some states you can only have the particular license plate message based on a legislative act as opposed to the application of an organization or an individual, that muddies the waters even further for me. It just goes to show that I don't think people, there would be really any way for people to understand all the different ways that a license plate gets created. And so then I think we are in this area of hybrid government private speech. And the Supreme Court just hasn't really weighed in yet or figured out what the rules should be for a state disallowing certain messages. So it it seems to me like on the one hand, and the justices, I think, were heading in this direction. It is crazy to think that the state would have to give out a license plate that says like, go jihad or bong hits for Jesus, something that just seems totally disrespectful and out of sync with any message a state would want to convey. And yet at the same time, I can't figure out what the standard is other than like offensive or we just don't like this or could incite public violence. All of those things are such slippery slopes for banning certain kinds of speech. States also ban particular personalizations on license plates, right? You can't have fuck you on your license plate. They won't allow it. They, I'm sure they wouldn't allow their racial epithets. You know, you couldn't put kike on it. Um, <laughs> I would love to try to put honky on a on a on a license plate. Is this, is so that, with all those things, is I mean, the curse words you could say you could think of like the FCC rules against cursing on the radio and make some little carve out some exception for that. I don't know how you justify go, not having. But you could probably have go jihad, right? Could you have go jihad? The, the, I bet the, they would turn that down. I, I think they would turn that down as sort of like, you know, a, along the same lines as like a racial epithet. Right. But I don't know why exactly. I mean, when you start thinking of those vanity license plates as being the person as opposed to the state, it starts seeming like, well, people should be able to say anything they want, just like they could have a go-jihad bumper sticker. But this is also why it's clear to me that the license plate is different. It's this place where the government and the people are talking together somehow, and then the government has to have some way to make a rule. It's just hard to see exactly what it is. Is there something about, like, distracting? If you have jihad, if you have go jihad on your license plate, people who see it are going to be like, what the fuck? Jesus. And it's going to be it's going to be some form of public safety disruption. I mean, is that the claim? Well, Chief Justice Roberts kind of went in that direction. He said the jihad license plate could like incite public violence. The problem with that is that it's rooting the First Amendment standard in the response of the audience, which is something we don't usually like to do, because then you're back really in the world of like what is so super offensive that people could have a car crash or pull out a gun because of it. Huh. But it's clear that no state would – they would never get to a point where they would allow a Nazi swastika or go Hitler on – Well, the lawyer for the Sons of the Confederate Voters said that actually they would have to allow all of those But clearly, like clearly he went into a land of hypotheticals which would never happen, right? They would not allow that to happen. So we have to figure out what bars us from getting there. Is it a public safety standard? Well, the problem is that it was telling that he got stuck in that land of the hypothetical that would never happen because he was essentially – he had no standard to articulate to save himself from that place and nobody did at argument. And there – I haven't seen anything in the briefs that's – I mean the ACLU brief basically says, well, you know, the state could just stop issuing these kinds of license plates. That's where you end up. And then Justice Kennedy's response to that would be to say, well, that's bad because then you're taking away this chance for everyone to have speech on their license plates. Although, to which Justice Breyer said, well, why don't we just have go back to bumper stickers? I, I don't... <laughs> 
It is confusing. Also, another thing that happened, people don't put bumper stickers on their cars the way they used to. No, they don't. I was just having a conversation with this about this with someone. We were both like, we both wondered why you would do it. Be- why you would or wouldn't yeah, do it? Yeah, just because it seems kind of obnoxious. To put a bumper sticker on your car? To put like one that's like, you know, some political message or whatever. But I think people don't, it's a property value thing. Why yeah, do you guys too. think that people don't put bumper stickers on I their car? I think it's a property value thing. bumper stickers all the time. They're not, not so much. Not the way they used to. Not like in the 70s. I have no experience of the 70s. I don't know on. what the so the evidence is for this great statement of yours. I, I guess you're right. I have no idea. I can't believe you guys aren't with my, that symbols are not speech. I just don't think the Confederate flag understand. is I the same as saying I think that is so bizarre that you're arguing that. I mean, symbols I, are I, I not don't know. Speech? Like, having grown up around people who had Confederate flags everywhere and, like, I think waving a Confederate flag says something about you as a person and it, it endorses a particular kind of message so like i see that kind of stuff as speech definitely but absolutely yeah i guess i also feel like i just can't get myself to the point where it's okay for people to write anything they want on their license plates because it does feel like the state is giving some kind of seal of approval and that they should be able to set a standard and then though I get stuck about what the standard could possibly be, except I want to just go back to a Supreme Court case called Russ versus Sullivan, with which I disagree, but in which case, in that case, the court said, okay, the state, the government can or cannot say anything it wants when it's funding a program. And that case happens to be about whether abortion providers who receive public funding are allowed to, not sorry, whether physicians who receive public funding are allowed to even mention the word abortion when they're doing family planning. And even though I disagree with that case, it just seems like if the government's talking, it's really hard to know what the rule could be other than the government gets to say whatever it wants to say. Oi. So last word to you, Emily. Any guess on where the court ends with this? I think they're going to end up in some some way of saying no to any kind of license plate whatsoever. Or they'll give Texas the choice that they can either say yes to every single license plate under the planet or stop allowing license plates to be paid for by individuals and organizations at all. Which, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's fine. Except that I kind of understand why states want to make a little bit of money on the side from this. I wonder how much money they do make. It's whack. Not very much, apparently. I This one is hard. All right. Let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> We didn't solve that for you. No, it's I just it's an awesome one because of course it doesn't really matter. It's like a totally minor thing. Right, it, it has totally nothing to do with anything, matter. and yet it has this quality of Rubik's cubedness to it. Which I'm sick this week, so my head is not working very well. But it really threw me. This one. Yeah, no, I think you're thrown for a good reason. I think we just don't. It, it's a very weird fit for our the way of thinking about the First Amendment. It's time to hear from one of the other great podcasts on the Panoply Network. Hi, I'm James Ledbetter of Inc. Magazine and Inc.com. I would like you to listen to our podcast, Inc. Uncensored, in which my colleagues and I talk about business and startups and entrepreneurship and technology and cool companies and, frankly, just about anything we want to. For example, this week, executive editor John Fine talked about... An excellent primer to indie rock economics circa 2015, as described by the long-running band Deerhoof. Editor-at-large, Kimberly Weisel. Core power yoga. Get ready for the Starbucks of yoga. And staff writer, Will Yakowitz. Two companies, Taser and Vview, that are making body cameras for police. They are trying to sow the seeds of trust between police and public or just trying to make some bucks. Download us at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks. The crash of a German Wings plane on a routine flight flown into an Alp, complete destruction, 150 people dead, has gripped public attention this week. And now it turns out that... It appears to have been an act of suicide and mass murder by the co-pilot, whose name is Andreas Lubisch. I'm probably mispronouncing it. 28-year-old German who locked the pilot out of the cabin when the pilot went to go to the bathroom and then steered the plane into a mountain as the pilot desperately tried to get back into the cockpit to stop it. This is obviously not a political topic, but it's the gripping news story of the week. So let's talk and about it. And it's a post 9-11 airplane security topic. If it turns out that this is in fact suicide, is this going to change the role of pilots? Are we going to head towards the self-flying plane faster than we thought we were? I think we're still a ways off from self-flying planes, at least for self-flying passenger planes. But certainly I think it may 
lead us to reconsider, you know, like Emily said, how we do airplane security. Because I think people tend to think of security as being sort of like a, you know, you do this and you're secure, but it's really kind of a, a matter of probabilities, right? Like you're you're increasing the, you're decreasing the odds of one kind of thing, increasing the odds of another kind of thing. You're kind of just balancing those risks. The, the actual, the number of cases of this sort of suicide by plane are so low that I'm actually not sure that there's that much of a risk of this. But, you know, it may lead people to think, well, maybe we should find ways to make cockpit doors more accessible from the outside um, in some way, shape, or form. So the problem here, right, is the one crazy person on the flight problem. And we've been used to thinking of the one crazy person as a terrorist who was a passenger on the plane. So we made the cockpit doors harder to open. But as I understand, in the United States, the pilot is not supposed to be alone in the cockpit. If there had been an American flight, then someone else from the crew would have had to go into the cockpit when the captain left. And so that seems like the best way to safeguard against the one crazy person being at the controls of the plane. And I guess the Germans didn't have that rule. Yeah, I think that's right. But that may well be true. But airline accidents in general are down significantly. Like there just are not that many commercial air crashes, many fewer than there used to be. Even, you know, this with this terrible year, there's still, I think, many been many fewer. I don't think there's been a major U.S. commercial airline crash maybe since just after 9-11. Yeah, it's been – I think 9-11 was like the last one. Well, there was one two, a couple months after 9-11 where that plane crashed in Queens. But basically it has not – there hasn't been one. But if you think about the, the crashes that we've had, there's a significant number. There's the plane that went down in the Atlantic Ocean coming from Brazil. That was a huge pilot. That wasn't pilot suicide. It was pilot error. There was an Egypt Air flight, which was pilot suicide apparently. 1999, um, right? Yeah. There was a crash outside of Buffalo that I think was pilot error. The Malaysian Air, we don't know, but could have been pilot suicide also. It seems to me that there's like – that there are strong reasons to – keep people out of cockpits. I mean, just when I look at it, it feels to me like that humans are making the mistakes that are causing these accidents to happen in general. Right. So now clearly their humans are probably preventing mistakes too, but like, isn't, isn't this a thing to think about? Well, so then the question is, could we do more mental health screenings of pilots? Like um, there's going to be lots of reporting about this particular co-pilot. How was he acting in the days before the flight? Or is there any reason for anyone to have suspected that he was mentally ill? Because otherwise, this is just such an unfathomable event. Because we're, look, I mean, self-flying planes, Maybe you're right. Maybe we'd be better off taking human error or human um, insanity out of the picture. But it's not like that's going to happen tomorrow. We have self-flying planes. We have drones. For commercial airlines? Okay. It's, we have drones uh, sir, that Surely fly. there are many systemic changes that have to be made before of course you there could are, have everybody. Of course there are. But you could, you could have something where a plane was responsible for. Like the, the, the crash that happened over the Atlantic with that plane went down because it co-pilot completely messed up. He misread some airspeed monitor and like did exactly the wrong thing with the plane. Just a terrible story. That crash would easily would have been prevented if the if the autopilot had just been allowed to do its thing. So did the autopilot so send we... that guy alerts? Like can you have I mean if you're talking about error as opposed to craziness, could you have systems that, you know, send big red lights blinking if certain weird things happen, like what they should have on the Metro North trains that I ride that they don't seem to have? Yeah, I mean like can't you have something where you have much more autopilot and that the, and then home base can take over the plane or that the pilots just can have less role in messing stuff up than they clearly seem to have now. I think it's a change that's going to happen just because, like, if you're thinking in terms of business, and I think an airline would much prefer to not have to worry about, like, you know, making sure pilots sleep. You can run flights much more frequently if you're just running them automatically. But to get to that point, you don't just have to change sort of like the technology on planes because they have to be able to monitor like a whole host of different variables. But you also have to begin to change how we do uh, air traffic control, which is still is like very much kind of old fashioned in its reliance on people. Like there's a there's this whole suite of things you have to change about the airline industry to get to that point. And in the meantime, you know, we're just gonna have pilots flying planes. And so I think Emily's right that mental health screenings. I know the FDA, FAA rather, a couple years ago ended its ban on pilots taking antidepressants. And there's just going to be have to be more mental health screening to pilots because it's like of all the jobs that you don't want someone to be depressed, pilot is like top of the list. Yeah. I had a long drive 
this I'm week. I'm also flying in like a couple hours, and this is not Sorry. a pleasant conversation. <laughs> we had a different, we had a, we had a similar <laughs> oh, conversation like this last week, actually. <laughs> I, I had a long drive this week, and I was by myself, and I was, you know, like Talk slightly, about capacity for human screw-ups. Dr- drowsy God. during it. Ugh. But my, my the overwhelming sense that I had during that drive was, my God, we need self driven 18 wheelers like that's like that is the thing which clearly if you want to change safety in america make self makes trucks self-driving because they are so menacing to those of us who are not in them oh it's just so horrible and there's something about the human psychology is it so much more upsetting to know that this happened by a pilot's deliberate actions, or is it, is it scarier? Is it just that it becomes more fascinating because then there are all these questions about this particular guy that you start wondering about? But it, in some macabre way, my interest in the story grew tremendously once I heard about that. Yeah, and, and I find it, I do find it scarier just because if it's a mechanical error, then you know you can rational, you can say basically planes are pretty safe, like. The odds of a mechanical happening to any given plane are, like, so low that, like, it's this was a fluke and it sucks, but it was a fluke. But, like, people get depressed a lot. <laughs> right. Like, I, I've never thought to have to, like, wonder, is my pilot, like, right. you know, un- mentally unstable? But now that's, like, a thing that I'm going to worry about. Well, except that in an American flight, then there would be two people right. there. And this, uh, you know, the poor guy who was pounding on the door trying to get back in clearly would have saved that plane if he could have. That's right. Well, you got to figure that even if you had two people in the cockpit, like, is there a moment when you're landing the plane where, who, you know, whoever's got the controls could just turn right or whatever and just at that <laughs> instant and, and mess everything up? I don't know. You know who I would hate to be? I would hate to be a young Muslim guy who wants to be a pilot in this country or anywhere. It'd be like, because I'm sure now the theory is, well, mental illness or not, but what about any jihadists? Like, is oh, yeah. this going to be the new thing? And and I, I'm sure if you're going to be hiring your American Airlines, you're going to be hiring your new pilots, you're not going to be hiring Muslims because you're just going to s- suspect Can that we this know like that this German cell. guy so far has had no, no proven connection to any kind totally, of jihad totally. at all? No, and I'm not okay. saying – that is absolutely the case. And I don't know that there's any example of this. I'm just saying that given that these two things, this, oh, pilots can ruin planes and we have suicidal Islamic terrorists, those two things are going to – if you're an airline executive, they're going to come together in your mind and be like – you know what? Let's not hire these guys. I seriously, if I were if I were a young Muslim pilot, I would be fretting right now about this. Right. Yeah. I mean, if this pilot's name was like Muhammad, we'd be oh, having yeah. a the completely different conversation. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Even if it was just a mental health thing, it would be we would be like, you know, is this a terror cell? Like, do we need right. to watch out for this? Right. Yeah. Right. All right. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Let's think about lovely things for. For Jamel, who's about to get on his flight, let's think of nice things to share with him so he doesn't have to think about think about the mental health of his pilot in a couple of hours. Emily, do you have a nice cocktail chatter for Jamel? I do, pretty much. So I missed all the Gabfest hand-wringing, or at least I would have done a lot of hand-wringing, over the re-election of Bibi Dantanyahu, perhaps my least favorite politician on the planet. Um, and there's been a lot of really interesting commentary about that. I took heart by reading a book called The People of Forever Are Not Afraid, which is a book from a few years ago by a young Israeli author named Shani Boyanju. She grew up in a small town in the north of Israel called, I think, Kfar Vadim, and she is writing about her experience, the experience of her friends fictionalized in the Israeli army. And it's an indictment in some ways of Israel and what it means to serve in the army right now but also just like a really interesting novel or rather kind of set of interconnected stories, which um, I recommend. It was sort of a breath of fresh air to think about Israel and even the Israeli-Palestinian conflict from this perspective. That wasn't like, Cheerful, super cheerful. I didn't. I didn't come <laughs> away from me, that, that thinking. For me, that counts as cheerful. Oh, that's a good great. Book. So Jamel's going to get on his flight. And he's flight. He's going to read about the Israeli army. That's awesome. <laughs> Jamel, what's your chatter? I've got a cheerful chatter, so I'll I'll, I'll buck you up in a minute. All right. Um, my my chatter is I I watch a lot of movies, and the last movie I saw was Big Hero Six, which came out last year, and I I really loved it. It it sort of has that Incredibles vibe. Um, sort of you know. Family, imagined family, superheroes, like lots of heart heartbreak, but also lots of heroism. But it doesn't have the other, like the weird Incredibles vibe, which to me the Incredibles is the master of the Incredibles is 
special people can be special as long as they keep the normals in their place. Um, <laughs> and like, I've, I love that movie, but like every time sort of that begins to surface, I'm just sort of like, uh, it's iffy. So Big Hero 6 is like The Incredibles without like their weird Ayn Randian like ideology underneath it all. Um, and I really recommend it. I, fu- I finished that movie just sort of really delighted by everything about it. Agree. I took my kids to that. They liked it. I also am going to chatter about a movie. So I saw the debut of a fantastic documentary, which I hope will will make its way around the world and will make it to you soon in your neck of the woods. It's called The Land. Uh, It's a short 35-minute film made by a documentarian named Erin Davis. I don't think she's made anything else before. And it's about a place called The Land, which is what's an adventure playground in North Wales. And this is a playground. It doesn't look like a playground. It looks like it looks like a vacant lot. A very Ooh, is it scruffy. one of the playgrounds in Hannah's Atlantic yeah, it's story the, from? Yeah, so Han, my wife had written a story about the overprotected kid and it be, she to tell the story, she went and took our youngest son to this playground in North Wales. And it's a place where children are basically are given a huge amount of liberty to take risks and to do to do things that if they were being done in American playgrounds, parents would go crazy. Like like set fires. Like as I set fires. Mainly, you know, the big one is like setting fires, lighting lots of fires, climbing trees quite dangerously, you know, swinging on ropes without any protections, uh, and generally taking risks at play. While there are the what are called play workers, who are people who are actual employees of the playground, who are they're not supervising, but they're alert to what's going on and, and making sure that the – it's very complicated. <laughs> very complicated what they're, they're making sure. They're not actually making sure that someone doesn't get hurt because you no, can still fall. You can still fall. It The movie is beautiful and fascinating and like I cried during it because it was just this portrayal of what childhood could be and the sense of watching these children learn the risks around them and learn to play with the risks and, and experiment. It was – beautiful and the movie the movie is really it's a stunning stunning piece of work so if you get a chance sounds like such a good conversation starter for schools and parent groups oh it's great there's and there's now a couple of these playgrounds in the u.s one just opened in ithaca new york there's one in berkeley it it actually turns out that the the insurance isn't really the real issue which you would have thought it was it's not liability because playgrounds are already cost a ton to insure and these don't seem to cost significantly more it's Part of it is that they it's they all have workers who work there, which is not the standard American playgrounds. And another is that they look terrible. Like they look awful. They don't look like playgrounds. They look like vacant dumps. Dumps. Yeah, they look like dumps. They they look like the kind of places that third world children scavenge in. The movie's fantastic. The land. Go see it if you can. Our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. And our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Email address is GabFest at Slate.com. That is a lot of GabFest. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. For Emily Bazelon, who's back, and Jamel Bowie, who is... In as always, a fantastic sub for Thanks whoever for he's subbing for. Thank you, no Jamel. Problem. I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. John will be back, I think. So we'll be our usual compliment. But who needs it when you've got Jamel? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.